This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. We have a great episode prepared for you today. Before we begin, just a few announcements about what's new here at Construction Law Today. First, the podcast is now available in more sites than ever before. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. All of these are very easy to use, and the podcast is easy to download from each of these sites. I'll mention that Podbean seems particularly user-friendly. If you're having any issues finding us, please contact us at the address found at the end of the podcast. Second, we have improved sound equipment. It's our hope to record with the highest sound quality as we possibly can. Please let us know what you think. And finally, the subject of today's podcast, Insurance Issues and Construction Litigation, will be the first two-part series on construction law today. The subject is so broad and I think so important that it deserves an extended discussion. Which now brings us to our guest, David Sucher from the Maslin Law Firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Dave is an accomplished and well-respected construction insurance lawyer. Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Thanks very much, Buzz. Great to be here. Subject today is gonna be insurance coverage on construction matters. And let's start with the basics and move on to some of the more complicated issues. What I'd like to do first is just get a quick summary of your background, in particular in construction insurance law. Sure, Buzz. So I chair the Maslin Law Firm's construction group, and I do construction insurance coverage matters across the country and defend design and construction cases here in Minnesota. In the construction insurance area, I do a variety of claims. Some of the current representations are for ongoing projects, the LaGuardia Airport reconstruction and Second Avenue subway projects in New York City uh, for post-projects claims, uh, Millennium Tower and the FIU bridge collapse in Miami, and uh, defend a variety of claims in Minnesota on the construction side, including those related to U.S. Bank Stadium here. Sounds like a terrific practice. Let me mention to our audience, Dave, that you've been so very active with the ABA Forum on Construction Law, you serve on the steering committee of the insurance uh, section with Division 7. I know you've been an editor of the construction lawyer for a number of years, and I also understand that uh, you're co-authoring the insurance chapter for the ABA Forum's Construction Defects book. I want to make sure that you understand how much the forum appreciates your dedication. Okay, Dave, let's get down to it. And what I learned as a construction lawyer, is you always start at the beginning, whether it's a project or an insurance policy. So let's begin 
looking at the commercial general insurance liability policy. I assume that's the one you deal with primarily? Uh, Yes, it is, Buzz. The CGL policy is probably the most common uh, insurance policy in the construction industry. So we begin, I think, with the insuring agreement. Is that where you start? That makes sense, Buzz. Yes, the declarations and the insuring agreement are the two first and important portions of of the CGL policy. I'd like to talk to you, Dave, a little bit about where these policies come from. What's ISO and what do they do? So ISO is the Insurance Services Organization, or office rather. They started in 1971, and they're best known in this context for copywriting, drafting, and then copywriting the forms that are the CGL form, for example. So the same 16 to 18 page form is used for most policies. So Dave, I'm sure you've you've been asked this before or thought about this. Why does almost every carrier in the CGL business sell the same policy? The policies are tested. So the provisions have been looked at by courts. You get repeat expectations of the same result time and time again. And so insurance companies know what they are passing on and negotiating and what the results should be as a result. Let's talk about what that ISO CGL policy ensures. What's its purpose and what does it cover? So the most typical claim that an ISO CGL policy responds to is allegations of negligent construction. And it depends on which state's law applies as to how valuable the CGL form is. That's one of the funny things about CGL policies is that there's such variance in state law. Uh, So we're always looking to what state law applies. So let's take it from a a broad perspective. How do you break down those parts of this ISO CGL policy? Probably the most important parts are property damage and bodily injury. So let's start with that. Coverage A, uh, that is the most common uh, responsive part of the CGL policy. And, And within each different state, you may have different definitions of what an occurrence is. So whether something that is accidental or repeat exposure is covered under the policy. You mentioned a term occurrence. Let's spend just a minute to talk about occurrence policies as opposed to claims made policies. CGL is an occurrence policy, right? That is correct almost all the time. So you have an occurrence-based policy, which means that the CGL policy responds to a loss or damage when it occurs. Claims made policies like professional liability policies usually are. You have to have the claim occur during the policy period. And uh, a lot of the time, those are claims reported policies too, where you have to report the claim during the policy period. The CGL is, is not one of those policies. So as I'm looking from the insurance perspective of what policy might answer for something that just happened, I would look for the term of that policy and the date of the occurrence of the event. Is that right? That is right. And you will find the dates of the policy on the declarations page, which usually is the first or second page of the CGL policy. Let's, let's put this a little bit into the real world context now. I'm a contractor, general contractor on a project, and an event has occurred such that an owner has filed a complaint against me. Do the terms of the complaint make a difference with regard to whether there's coverage or not? 
Yes. So in most cases, the complaint is everything or close to it. You have eight corners and four corner states where all you do is look at the complaint and the policy to decide whether there's coverage. I have you to also tell you, have, Dave, I've, I've never heard of the eight corners of the complaint. <laughs> what does that mean? Essentially the same thing. It's taking the four corners of the complaint and comparing them to the four corners of the policy. Four and four equals eight corners. Okay. Good, now, in some, in some states, they allow uh, certain extrinsic evidence in terms of evaluating coverage. What's the theory there? So most states allow extrinsic evidence to prove coverage which is to say if the insurer knows of facts which would lead to coverage, which are not mentioned in the complaint, you still get coverage. A minority of states allow extrinsic evidence to disprove coverage as well. Interesting. Can you give me an example of how that might work? Yeah, sure. I just litigated a case out in San Francisco where the allegations in the complaint against my client, uh, who was the geotechnical engineer for the building surrounding Millennium Tower, uh, included allegations that may be non-professional in nature. Uh, now, at the same time, my, my clients, one of their main defenses in the underlying Millennium Tower cases was that they only perform professional services. Uh, our argument on the duty to defend case in Superior Court in San Francisco was that the allegations were what mattered. And we won on summary judgment on the duty to defend because the court focused on the allegations, not on any extrinsic evidence. Well, let's take a minute just to break down what you just told me, because there's another principle there, and that has to do with the interface between the CGL and the professional liability policy. Can you talk about yep. that? Yeah, sure. So what was in play there was the professional services exclusion in the CGL policy. That's not part of the insuring agreement. It is one of the very common endorsements, exclusions on policies. And the idea behind it is that you shouldn't get double coverage. If all you're doing is performing professional services, that should be covered under a professional liability policy, not under a CGL policy. That's been explained to me, uh, Dave, uh, because of the history of the CGL policy, it's not a construction policy per se. It's an accident policy. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that is fair to say. It's a third-party property policy that primarily responds to third-party property damage. That's right. So, so you're in the position in a lot of these cases of either representing the contractor seeking coverage or the carrier who's uh, trying to uh, get out of coverage, and you mentioned- I always you, represent policyholders, Buzz. So. You always represent policyholders. So Correct. you were talking about uh, the application of state law. Does it become an issue of which state's law applies in a given question of whether there's coverage? Absolutely. So on the occurrence issue and property damage in particular, across the 50 states, there is a whole patchwork of different approaches to coverage. So choice of law issues in these CGL policy matters are extremely important. There are almost never choice of law provisions in CGL policies. The results from even states next to each other are so different that one of the first issues we're always looking at is which state's law applies. And that's particularly true, I think, in the construction defect context, where the majority of states seem to be trending towards coverage for defects by uh, subcontractors. But there's still a, a couple of states, or perhaps a number of them, Ohio immediately comes to mind, 
those states Supreme Courts have said that uh, the defective work by a sub is not um, covered by the CGL policy. Has that been your experience? That, that is absolutely right, Buzz. And the, the implications of that are important, right? You have states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Illinois that do not have particularly good law for insureds on this issue. And then states right nearby them that have much better law. So the location of the project, the location of the insured, uh, other factors, we're, we're always looking to see where we can get the best law for our insured client. It's interesting that coverage is based, and, and we'll talk about some of the exclusions later, but the coverage is based on whether it looks like an accident to the insured, that is, for example, the bad work of a subcontractor. Do you ever get into that discussion with uh, a general contractor about the scope of coverage when they self-perform as opposed to yeah. the scope of coverage when they subcontract out the work? Absolutely, we do. It, it is a wider range of coverage when a subcontractor performs the work. You have the subcontractor exception to the your work exclusion in the insuring agreement. But for third-party property damage, there is often a way to find coverage for contractors as well. But those are certainly the conversations that we have with our contractor clients. I thought it was an interesting example of unintended consequences caused by the way that an insurance policy might respond to a claim. Yeah, that's, that, that is right. Uh, that is the, the general rule when it comes to CGL policies, but you have these business risk doctrine approaches in some of the what you might call bad coverage states for insurance, where part of the doctrine is that if you perform the construction in a purposeful way, it's not an accident. Uh, that's not anywhere in the policy. And when courts take a policy-based approach, they do a, a better job of, of finding coverage for insured uh, contractors and others. That's a, that's a very interesting point, Dave. Well, we'll pause for just a moment now and be right back with more Construction Law Today. We're back with the second half of today's episode of Construction Law Today. Our guest is David Sucher from the Maslin Law Firm in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and our subject is an introduction to construction insurance. Dave, in the first half of today's podcast, we were talking a little bit about the basics of where coverage comes from and examination of the four corners of the complaint and those issues generally relating to coverage. What I'd like to move into now are what are the, the general categories of issues that you see rising in the cases that you handle? Yeah, sure, Buzz. So some of the more common issues I see on larger claims now are claims that have the most factual complexity, including additional insured issues, uh, issues involving multiple claims or multiple self-insured retentions. And I think we mentioned in the first half of the podcast, the professional services exclusion, uh, see a lot of disputed claims in, in that arena as well. You used the term SIR, uh, self-insured retention, I think. Uh, explain that. Sure. Self-insured retention is the, the monies that the insured will pay before the insurer money kicks in. 
And you see self-insured retentions more commonly on professional liability policies, for example, not on uh, general liability policies. Now, um, those kinds of uh, self-insured retentions, is that is that the functional equivalent to a deductible under a property and casualty policy? Fairly similar. So yes, the deductible that most people are used to on your uh, car insurance policy, for example, technically the insurer uh, pays and then is reimbursed for that first amount. Whereas for the, the SIR, it comes directly from the insured's money to start with. So that's really the technical difference between the two. These SIRs can, uh, can get into some pretty big numbers, can't they? Absolutely. For the, the project-specific policies, you might have anywhere in the range of a $500,000 SIR up to $2.5 million SIRs. And, and those are for the really big projects where you have potentially large exposures. Well, there's another term that you've introduced, and let's talk about that. Um, Project-specific and practice policies. Uh, what does that term and uh, that term mean, and how does that work? So, for design firms, for example, they will have their own practice policy, <clears throat> their own professional liability policy that covers them for for any losses they might experience during a particular policy period. The project-specific policy covers one project. And so you, you deal with as an insurer and an insured all the potential issues that might come up, but only on a, a single project. Now, it seems on, on many of the larger projects now, uh, project-specific insurance is uh, a requirement. That, that be what, uh, what you've seen? Yeah, you, you see more projects that have project-specific policies and then wraps. So uh, a policy that puts under the umbrella uh, of the insureds all the folks who are involved, all the, the trades from the contractor to the engineers and architects, all within one single insurance policy. That raises another uh, term that you've used, and that's the wrap policy. Are we talking about uh, OSIPs and CSIPs? And can you explain those terms? Correct. Yes. So OSIP is an owner-controlled insurance program, and CSIP is its twin brother, the contractor-controlled insurance program. Similar idea for both of these concepts is that you have either the owner or the contractor who procures, who gets the policy for everybody else, and then everybody is under a single umbrella and is covered by, by one piece of insurance. So that would come in the form of a project-specific policy, right? Yeah, so you, yes, the, the wrap policy is for a single project. Uh, you often have for design firms a single project-specific design professional liability policy, but the, the OSIP or the CSIP is meant to uh, reduce the amount of complaints, for example, and fighting that you have between the parties, although it doesn't always do that on projects. <laughs> Well, I, I can tell you in my practice, uh, we're seeing more and more of these um, OSIPs and CSIPs. Um, what's, what's the theory? How did, how did they come into existence? Um, because I think prior to that, it was the, the typical practice that every contractor, be him a general or be a general or a sub, um, would be putting into their numbers uh, for bid their insurance costs. Right. The, the idea was simplicity, 
that you would have a single source of insurance for all the parties and the idea that it would eliminate infighting. So the, the often disputed issues on a construction project would be limited if you had a mutual waiver of liability and you had a single insurance policy that everyone could turn to uh, when there is some type of loss on these larger projects. Well, I'll, let me get your take on this. I, I had a substantial case where there was a, a CSIP in place and there were about 15 insureds under that policy. They were uh, parties, I think they were called enrollees uh, under the insurance program. And when a claim came from the owner, I think it was the insurance carrier's perception that there would be one lawyer for all of the covered contractor and subcontractors, yet there were cost cross claims between them. And the insured certainly were not satisfied with one lawyer. Right. I have had that exact situation. And I can tell you from both sides of it, really from the subcontractors counsel as coverage counsel, you want to have the ability to adjust the loss for your client and not have to rely on another party to do the adjustment and to deal with the insurance company directly. So early on, if you can, you want to negotiate the ability to, to adjust the loss on behalf of yourself, on behalf of your client. Let me have you look a little bit into your crystal ball. Mm -hmm. uh, OSIPs and CSIPs, the future? Yeah, okay. Uh, what, what about that, Buzz? What about the future with OSIPs and CSIPs? I, I can tell you in my practice, which is primarily the Rocky Mountain states, um, it, is, it is the trend. And I, I think what's driving it, I'd be interested in your thought, is that the potential commissions are so substantial for the brokerages to sell all the insurance for a project that um, this is the way that insurance is being marketed uh, to owners. Okay. Yeah, you, that definitely may be a motivation in terms of the underwriting and placement of the policies. And, and therefore, you, you do have some competition as between insurers to place the policies on these bigger projects. That probably is something to the idea that they would reduce the amount of disputes. I know there are some people who, who believe in that concept. Um, but I, I often get involved in these, these processes when there is a dispute. So that's the angle that I see it from. Yeah, and, and, and that's the same for me. And I wonder if that is the future as to whether the industry is heading in the right direction, but that may be a prognostication for another day. Let's talk a little bit about your role as insurance coverage counsel. There's some unique aspects to that kind of position. Yeah, I think that's right. So I, as insurance coverage counsel, I'm not just looking at the insurance issues in an academic way. I am trying to develop the best story for my clients. And that often involves learning about the project itself and talking to the project people and creating the best coverage story because it, it gives us the unique chance to take a new look at the case, at the underlying case, and develop what is the best story, the, the most unifying good story for our clients in terms of coverage. I, I also uh, see myself as being part of the process of managing settlement and I think that is maybe a unique role that we play as coverage counsel in these larger construction cases. I really love the idea, and I think 
trial lawyers will in, immediately gravitate to your comment about telling a story. Because a lot of what you're doing involves very complex documents and a lot of messy facts. Can you, can you give me an example of telling a story to elicit the kind of coverage that you think your client thought that he or she was getting when they purchased the policy? Sure. So I, I worked on a hurricane-damaged hotel, uh, and the entire case was about the curtain wall and about why the curtain wall was defective or defectively constructed. And when I looked at the case from the angle of a CGL policy and looking at property damage, I had to look at how that curtain wall damaged the rest of the property. And so I had to delve into all the facts of the case, the depositions, the videos, everything related to this underlying case on an issue that had never been developed before. And that's, that's part of the fun of what we do is creating that story about why there is a covered claim in the insurance context, a story that's never been told before. I'm not sure that the insurance company would find that to be fun, but but Coverage Council probably does. Well, let's talk about the kinds of situations uh, that come up as you're pursuing coverage. And this will be a little bit of a teaser towards our next episode where we're going to delve into some of the kinds of problems that you deal with. Let's talk about that situation where the carrier provides defense counsel perhaps an experienced construction lawyer, perhaps uh, an insurance defense counsel covers a broad range of cases. And that defense lawyer or the claims adjuster tells you now, keep in mind, our obligation as the carrier is to provide you with the defense. But of course, often the insured has a claim for payment that's related directly to the claim uh, by the owner related to defect. That's a pretty common scenario. And the argument from coverage counsel for the insured often is the affirmative claims and the defensive claims are inextricably intertwined, uh, that you really can't have one without the other, and that therefore both fall under the defense obligation of the insurance company and the insurer should pay for both of those types of claims. Because if if the insured has this affirmative claim and you get, find yourself in a setting, and I see this a lot in my practice as a mediator, the insured is not going to settle or, or be willing to negotiate without the owner taking into account the affirmative payment claim. That's, that's right. And, and I think you've, you just hit on an important topic too, Buzz, which is mediation and how in the complex construction claim context, I think that you are often looking for nowadays mediators who have some insurance coverage experience because those are the best mediators to really solve what are a combination of complex insurance coverage and construction claims at the same time. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that because often in in some of the larger, more complicated construction litigation I've been in, it really is an insurance question at least as much as a construction question. Right. And one of those issues that seems to come up over and over again 
in connection with sorting out the insurance is the question that was raised, I guess, about 30 years ago in the Cumis case in California, and that relates to what are the conflicts that arise between the carrier and its insurance defense counsel and what might be the rights of the insured to have their own counsel paid by the carrier. Can you talk about that a little? Right. So when there is a conflict and states have differing versions of this rule, some states allowing for independent counsel, but the conflict itself can range from anything uh, like a reservation of rights letter itself uh, or all the way to what are the, the typical uh, exclusions in a policy. So intentionality being the hallmark. If, if there is a conflict over intentionality in many states, the insured has the right to counsel paid for by the insurer, but not insurer appointed and chosen counsel. So that's the independent counsel rule that comes out of the, the QMS case in California. And the states that have, that have uh, considered that um, theory have decided it different ways, haven't they? They absolutely have, and you also have a good portion of states that do not allow for independent counsel. And, and so even if there is a conflict or a reservation of rights that includes the insurer's reasons why they may eventually deny coverage, the insurer still has the complete right to appoint counsel on behalf of the insured. And California, in fact, has modified the Cumis case by statute in that jurisdiction, so that's changed the rules a little bit there. That's right. And you have other states that have done the same thing, that have created a, a statutory framework by which insurers can, can look to those rules uh, if and when they do get the benefit of independent counsel. David, thanks so much for joining us today. We just completed the first episode of our podcast on construction insurance. And I'll mention to our listeners, we plan on following up with with David on a second episode and perhaps a third one on these very interesting and important issues. Dave, thanks so much for your time today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Buzz. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.